0: Welcome to the sixth episode in the Linklater's Competition Litigation podcast series. Today we're focusing on the English Court's approach to jurisdiction in competition litigation claims. I'm Harriet Ellis and I'm joined today by my colleagues James Henner and Alice Shaw.
1: Thanks Harriet. As an opening remark, it's widely recognised that the English Courts have taken a very broad approach to their jurisdiction over competition claims involving an international element, which has contributed to the UK becoming such a popular forum for claimants to bring private enforcement actions. The English court's extensive approach to jurisdiction has notably been manifested in two ways. The first way is the court's broad interpretation of the territorial application of competition law provisions. And the second way is the court's acceptance of jurisdiction over claims where UK domiciled persons are sued as, what are known as anchor defendants, as a means for claims to be brought in the UK. We're going to explore both of these approaches in a bit more detail. Alice. Why don't you kick us off with the territorial application?
2: I will do, James. So the lay of the land in terms of the UK court's approach to territorial application of competition law has been very broad in recent years, such that an infringement does not necessarily have to have taken place in the jurisdiction and no direct purchases of goods or services subject to the infringement need to have occurred in the jurisdiction either. A key development in this regard was a Court of Appeal judgment from February 2018 regarding a claim brought by IAMA, a computer monitor manufacturer, who was seeking follow-on damages after the European Commission found that Samsung and others had been part of worldwide cartels in the markets for cathode ray tubes and liquid crystal displays. The jurisdiction issue before the Court of Appeal was that, one, whilst the European Commission identified a worldwide cartel, its jurisdiction was confined to the EU. Two, IAMA's claim merely concerned purchases of finished monitors which incorporated the cartelized components, but from parties who were not involved in the infringement, who had themselves purchased the cartelized components. So they were indirect purchasers. And three, IAMA's purchases did not take place in the EU. In an attempt to get around these issues, IAMA argued that products were sold by them in the EU. So there was a finding of a breach by the EU commission and an impact on the EU market. The number of the defendant's arguments was that, due to the indirect links to the EU market, the claims fell outside the territorial application of EU competition law. However, the Court of Appeal, partly reversing the High Court's decision, found in favour of IARMA, ruling that under the Qualified Effects Test, which was established by the Court of Justice of the European Union, Article 101 can extend to harm arising from products originating outside the EU, as long as the infringement causes effects inside the EU. Now, we should note that whilst this was a pre-Brexit judgment, it remains good law. The court crucially found that the territorial application cannot be determined adversely to the claimants on a summary basis, and that it was at least arguable the effects of a worldwide cartel in the eu fall within the scope of article 101. an appeal to the supreme court on this point was rejected so as things stand provided an arguable case can be shown that an infringement has had effects inside the eu a competition damages action can be brought on the basis of eu law
0: That's right Alice, the Yaiyama decision certainly appears to open the door to claimants who allege they've suffered indirect effects of competition law infringements here in the UK to enabling them to bring private enforcement claims here, even if the infringement occurred elsewhere. Let's talk about the second of the ways the English courts have shown themselves to take a very broad approach to jurisdiction. That's the generous approach taken over competition claims involving anchor defendants. For context, An anchor defendant is a defendant who's included in the claim for the primary purpose of providing a ground for the court to accept jurisdiction, where it might not otherwise do so. This is most frequently pursued under Article 4.1 of what's commonly referred to as the Brussels recast regulation. That provision makes it mandatory for national courts of member states to accept jurisdiction over a claim in respect of a defendant that's domiciled there. So if you can prove a defendant is domiciled in the jurisdiction, this can act as your hook, or rather anchor, the claims against further defendants also to be heard in that national court. Two key cases have set out the English court's approach to anchor defendants in competition litigation and, spoiler alert, the approach is essentially that the court will see if the anchor defendant knowingly implemented the anti-competitive behaviour.
1: Now the first of those cases is a High Court judgment in Battenfall and Prismian from July 2018 which was a follow-on claim from a European Commission decision finding a cartel in the power cables sector. Plattenfall sued two companies that were addressees of the Commission's decision, but that were not domiciled in the UK, and two subsidiaries that were domiciled in the UK, but were not addressees of the Commission's decision. So, if you've been following, you'll see that the UK subsidiaries were the anchors intended to allow the claims to be brought in the UK. The defendants disputed the English court's jurisdiction and the High Court found that it would have jurisdiction if the UK anchor defendants had, quote, knowingly implemented the cartel. Now, breaking this down, in relation to knowledge, largely due to the imbalance of information between claimants and alleged cartelists, the court essentially established a presumption, a rebuttable presumption, uh, indeed, that the cartelist subsidiaries are privy to actual knowledge of the cartel without the need to prove that is the case. As for implementation, again to the disadvantage of defendants, the court set a low threshold for the types of behaviour that would qualify, including things like the provision of indirect sales, the involvement of employees in activities that fall within the scope of the cartel, the anchor being a fiscal representative of an addressee, and the anchor subsidiary dealing with customers on behalf of other group members, so, as you can see, this covers a very wide range of activities.
2: And the courts continued in that vein with the second key decision on this topic, Media Saturn and Toshiba, which is another High Court decision, handed down just a year later in May 2019. Again, the knowing inflammation t- test was applied to UK subsidiaries who were included as defendants to the claim, but who were not party to the underlying infringement decision. And the English court accepted jurisdiction as a result. In particular, the court noted that the knowledge required under the test can be actual and that could be expressed, implied or inferred or could be imputed by law, which again works in favour of the claimants.
0: That's right, Alice. I think the key takeaway here is that the court has made it rather easy for UK group companies to be used as effective anchors to bring claims before the English courts against non-UK domiciled companies. something multinational companies should be aware of if they're facing any type of competition enforcement action. But the use of anchors doesn't just stop at group companies. As a hot off the press update, a judgment was handed down by the High Court less than three weeks ago in the cases of Viegas and Sanchez against Procidico Cotrale, in which we acted, is proof that claimants can attempt to use individuals as anchors. In this instance, an individual who held a senior role in a Brazilian company and was a shareholder was alleged to have participated in a cartel and was sued alongside the company, with the claimants arguing that both the company and the individual were domiciled in England as a hook for the claims to be heard by the English courts. The defendants challenged jurisdiction and the court found that the individual was domiciled in the UK under the Brussels recast regulation and so accepted jurisdiction over the claim against them. However, the court found that the company was not domiciled in the UK under Brussels recast and so declined jurisdiction over the claim against the company, going on to comment on an obiter basis, that it would in any event have issued a stay in favor of Brazil on the basis of common law forum non-convenience grounds. This shows that even if you do secure the jurisdiction of the English courts via an anchor defendant of any kind, it does not necessarily follow that the court will also accept jurisdiction over claims against other defendants that are not on the side in England, particularly where there is a more appropriate forum.
1: There's certainly an interesting outcome, Harriet, as it's likely that the company was the key defendant the claimants were seeking a remedy from, not the individuals, and that the individuals were simply acting as anchors. So we'll have to see what happens with that claim going forwards. Now, it's important to note that all the claims we've just referred to on jurisdictional anchors uh, predate the end of the Brexit transition period. And for claims issued after the end of that period, the Brussels recast regulation, uh, article four of which is the key provision for anchor defendant purposes, will no longer apply. Now, um, while that is the case, it's worth noting that over the last three or four years, the English courts have shown themselves increasingly ambitious in their attempts to police parent companies in respect to the actions of subsidiaries. Now, while we're yet to see this in a competition context, it has been quite eminent in in an ESG context. And there have been two particular Supreme Court judgments in Okbapi and Shell and Vedanta and Lungo, where the English courts have shown themselves um, to have a very low threshold for what's required from a parent company in order for it to be liable for the activities as its its subsidiaries and to be a legitimate target for jurisdiction purposes. And in the ESG context, that has included things like KPIs for senior executives, which are related to ESG um, and group-wide policies which cover ESG. So I think it's quite likely that when we see those kinds of claims being brought in a competition context, the English courts will take a similar approach. Now all of this teaches us that it's especially important to think ahead to any potential hooks for litigation that may follow public enforcement action and getting litigators involved early To help mitigate the risk of unwanted actions and identify whether English jurisdiction is a realistic prospect.
2: Thanks, James. And that brings us to the end of our sixth episode. Thank you all for listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklaters website. Our next podcast in this series will be on disclosure and confidentiality in competition damages actions. Finally, if you would like to get in touch with one of the team, then please do reach out to any one of us. Details are on the Linklater's website.